you have your Bibles, grab them in Romans chapter 10. We've been working our way through the book of Romans. Romans chapter 10. David Livingston might be a name you've heard before. David was known for, man, look at that orange. Check that out. Who day? David Livingston was known uh, for a guy who traveled pretty much the entire continent of Africa and created maps and roads for the entire continent of Africa as he was traveling as a missionary to reach all of these different villages and tribes throughout the continent. Throughout his journey throughout Africa, uh, he got attacked by a lion and almost died. He got sick several times and almost died, uh, but yet he still kept going, pursuing the African people so that they might, they might know Christ. And when he died, one of, the, one of the guys that came to faith in one of those tribes took his dead body and cut his heart out of his chest and buried it beneath a tree near his village and sent the body back to England saying, you can have his body, but his heart belongs to Africa. Lottie Moon broke off an engagement to the man she was supposed to marry because she knew if she married him, it would take her off the mission field and she would not be able to go to China and to serve the people of China where she spent most all of her life. William Carey gave his life to seeing the Indian people not Indians here, but Indians actually in India, even though the people in his church told him that if God wanted to save the heathens, he will do it without us. And he went anyway, that they might know Christ. Jim Elliott gave his life, you might have seen a movie about Jim Elliott, gave his life trying to get the gospel to the people in Ecuador. These are just a few examples of people who have had a burden for a specific people group and gave their life and their heart to them. It was their desire and their prayer, as we'll see Paul say in a moment, that those people might come to faith in Christ. And so they gave their life in service to them. Romans chapter 10 verse 1 says, Brothers, Paul speaking, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that them is the Israelites, to them is that they may be saved. I told you last week that chapters 9 through 11 are kind of a a section unto themselves where Paul really is grieving the reality that his Jewish brothers and sisters have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. And Paul is now longing for his Jewish brothers and sisters to come to faith. Last week in, in 9 we said that he wishes, he went so far as to say, look, I wish that I could be cut off from Christ. I wish that I could go to hell. I wish that I could take my salvation and, and remove it if it meant that they could have it. I would go to hell if it meant they would be saved. He wished he could be cut off and separated from Christ. And I said, there ain't nobody I love quite that much. He says that it's, his desi- it's the desire of his heart and prayer that they would be saved. These three chapters say and teach many things, but at the center of all of them is Paul's deep desire for his people to know Jesus. And when we look throughout history, we see great missionaries who were known and who were marked by the heart for this specific nation or people group, who gave so much of their lives and service to reaching them. 
And to be sure, there are tons of people unknown to the history books who have given their lives to their neighborhoods or their communities or their workplaces to see people come to faith. But my question for us this morning as we start is this. Who are the lost people in your life that you are burdened for? Who are the lost people in your life that you are burdened for? And my question for us is, do we know which of our coworkers are actually converted followers of Jesus and which are not? Do we know which members of our family believe and which ones don't? Do we know which of our neighbors truly follow Jesus and which ones don't? Or do we know our neighbors at all? I'm not talking about us going on a mission trip. I'm not talking about us getting on a plane and crossing the ocean. I'm asking in the normal pattern of your life, do you know where the lost people are? In the everyday goings of your life, do you know where lost people are? Have you been paying enough attention? Paul functions here as a model for us. But not as a model of, here is what a super faithful, Jesus freak, extraordinary, amazing Christian does. No, instead he is the model for us of what a normal, basic, plain, everyday, normal Christian is like. Because Christians are missionaries. There are not some Christians who choose to become missionaries. Christians are missionaries. In and of themselves, Christians are missionaries. Christians are to be missionaries everywhere they go. Not just sometimes when you go on a trip. Not just sometimes when the church is, you know, going on a thing. But tomorrow. Tomorrow you are a missionary. Whether you go to work, whether you stay home with your kids, or whether you go to lunch with someone, or whether you're at a coffee shop, Or whether you're in the Walmarts or the Krogers. Or whether you're taking your dog on a walk at the park. Wherever you go, you are a missionary. You are on the mission field. The only real question is whether or not you're a a good or bad missionary. The question is only whether you're a very good missionary or not. And being a good missionary is not marked by how many people you've led to the Lord. That's not the mark. The mark of whether or not you're a good missionary is how many opportunities you've sought out. How many, cha- how many chances have you had and taken to share Jesus with someone. Planted a seed, watered a seed of the gospel that it might later grow. It is the reason we thought it was so important when we made our core values as a church to make one of them say that every member is a missionary. Every member a missionary. Because we believe as a church that it is basic to Christianity to share the most, what should be the most important thing in our lives. I'm going to take that as an amen. To take the, the, the most fundamental, most important thing in our lives, that we would share it. We think that is a basic idea in Christianity. That is just normal. That's not extraordinary. That's not extreme. That's just every day. So my prayer for our church is that we would begin to develop more and more of a, of a heart and a burden and a passion for lost people like Paul has here. Because if we do, 
our neighborhoods and our city and our community will be transformed. It will be unrecognizable. And I, and I really believe that if we begin to live out that, that we would begin to feel the sense of purpose and significance, completeness that sometimes we feel like we don't have. So my challenge to you in this first point is this, that tomorrow morning, when your alarm goes off, or if you're one of those weird people who don't have an alarm, it just wakes up, that before your feet hit the floor, that you would simply pray this, God, give me an opportunity today to share the gospel and give me the courage to do so. God, give me the opportunity today to share the gospel and give me the courage to do it. And I think you will be amazed at what might happen in your life. And maybe every morning pray that. God, give me the opportunity today to share the gospel and give me the courage to do it. And let's see what happens. All right. Look at verse 2. For I bear them witness. Talking about the Israelites, the Jews. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. Right? Zeal, passion for God. But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. You know, I think one of our biggest problems in sharing our faith is that we assume people in our life are believers, when in actuality, those people are far from God. I think part of the problem in that we don't share our faith as often as we do is because we assume that the people around us are already Christians and don't need us to share it with them, when in reality, there are far more people that are far from God near us than we realize. Paul is reminding us here of the Jews' problem, and people today face a very similar problem. Their problem wasn't that they weren't religious. The Jews were incredibly religious. They believed in God. It wasn't that they weren't passionate about God. It wasn't that they weren't zealous. It wasn't that they weren't all in on the things of God. It It wasn't that they weren't all in on spiritual things. He says that the Jews had a zeal for God, but the problem was their zeal or their passion was not in accordance with knowledge. They were seeking to establish their own way to God. You see, you can be religious without being saved. You can be religious without being saved. You can be religious and still be far from God. You can be spiritual and still be far from God. How many people do we encounter on a regular basis that if you ask them if they were a Christian, they would say yes. But if you were able to press into that a little bit, if you were able to ask some questions and kind of unearth what they really believed and really thought, you might discover that though they said they were a Christian, that the things that they actually believe are not really Christian at all. I cannot tell you how many people I have met with who tell me that they're a Christian, and they've been a Christian for a long time, and they were baptized in this church or that church, and They went to Awanas and they went to VBS and all this stuff. And they haven't been in church in a while, but they remember when they were saved. And when you ask them what the gospel is, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? Well, they tell me, you know what, Brent, I've I've tried to be a really good person. They look at me and say, Brent, you know, I've tried to live for the Lord the best I could. I think when I get there, he'll look at me and say, you did the best job you could, and, and I'll let you in. Because I lived my best. I tried to follow him. I tried to read my Bible. I can't tell you how many times I hear that, and I just break inside and go, no, 
Not it. Not it. Or how many people out there will tell you that they believe in God, but when you begin to press them on what they believe, you'll find that they trust more in crystals. They trust more in their horoscopes. And maybe they see a psychic on occasion. Or how many people would tell you that they're a Christian only to learn that they believe there are, you know, a lot of different ways to get to God. That, that God, you know, he's, he's in everything and he is everything. And as long as you try your best, as long as you try to be good and as long as you seek him out, he's going to accept you. It doesn't matter if you seek him through Buddha or through Eastern meditation or finding God on the golf course. Or, you know, I just find him out on the lake, sunbathing. That's where I find my God. You know, they say you just got to find God in your own life and in your own way. The same sort of people who might say, you know what, I don't believe in a God who would let this bad thing happen. I don't believe in a God who would, who would be against these sort of people. I don't believe in a God who might do this or that. You know, I believe in a God of love and acceptance. And I can't believe in this God. I've got to believe in that God. And what do we find? But people just make God up in their own image. They just create the God that they like the best. And then I'll worship that God because he fits with what I like. If your God, if the God you worship just agrees with you on everything, you might have the wrong God. I want you to see that there are a lot of religious people in your life who are far from God and on a highway to hell. There are a lot of people who believe that God exists. But don't the demons believe and shudder? There are a lot of people in your life who are spiritual, who are seeking. But they are doing so zealously, passionately, not in accordance with knowledge. The mantra of today's culture is, it doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere. It doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere about that. You know, be passionate about that. Really believe it genuinely. But I think, it, I think for us, it is always better to assume people do not know Jesus. And be surprised to learn that they do. I think it's better to assume people don't know Jesus and be surprised that they actually do than to assume they do know Jesus and learn later that they don't. Because they might be sincere in something, but maybe the wrong thing. Because too often people are trying to find God on their own terms. They want to come to God, they want to follow God, but they want to do it their way. Like Paul says, they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. With it being Super Bowl Sunday, I had to have a football illustration. Some of you have heard of a guy nicknamed Jim Wrongway Marshall. I'm too young to have known of this guy because uh, back in 1964, before we went to the moon, Jim Wrongway Marshall recovered a fumble, picked it up, and ran as fast as he could toward the end zone. And only later realized he ran to the wrong one. But he was running hard. He was running zealously and passionately, but he was not running in accordance with knowledge. It is not enough to believe there is a God. It is not enough to be passionate about the idea or the things of God. 
It is not enough for you to live your life every day doing religious things, doing spiritual things. If it's not according to knowledge. If it's in the wrong direction. Because religion and passion for God without knowledge still leads to hell. In our mission statement, we say that our goal is to make Jesus essential in all of our lives. And we say that the only way that that can happen is through the gospel being proclaimed, understood. We were really intentional. We thought that was really important. Because you can't to tell him that. I don't get to tell him on what basis I'm going to come. In the same way, I don't get to tell him on how people get to go to heaven. I have no right to tell God who he is, what he should be like, what he should do, or how I should know him. He is the only one who has the right to determine those things, not me or you. God alone has the right to say, here's who I am. And if you want to know me, if you want to be saved, here's the way you must do it. And is God's word not final? There is no wiggle room. There is no subjectivity. There is no other interpretation. It doesn't matter how I feel about those things. God's word is final. It is true, and I must submit to it. In a world that says it doesn't matter what you believe, just be sincere, the problem is you can be sincerely wrong. And there are consequences, eternal consequences to being sincerely wrong. It is popular today to say that Christians are arrogant for claiming that we have the exclusive, that is the only right way to God, and that everyone else is wrong. They look at us and they say, that is arrogant, that is old-fashioned, that is out of touch, that we need to get with the times, that we need to understand that there are many ways to God, many religious paths, many spiritual realities. But really, they're just establishing their own way to God based on nothing more than their own imaginations and creating a God in their own image that they like. They'll often use this illustration uh, about the blind men and the elephant. Maybe you've heard of it. They'll say that religion, that truth, that God is like an elephant. And religion is like blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is. And you put blind men in a room and one of them touches the trunk and they say, oh, an elephant is long and skinny and, and narrow with two little holes on the end. And then another a blind man grabs, grabs one of the legs and they say, oh, an elephant is, is short and stubby but really big around. And another one touches the side and it says, man, an elephant is huge. You couldn't even imagine getting your arms around him. An elephant's giant. Another one grabs the tusk and they say, no, elephants are, are sharp and they're, and they're, and they're, and they're uh, smooth and, 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 and long and pointy on the end. And, and they all say something different. And they'll say, you know, that's what religion's like. That we all just kind of have a piece of the truth, but not the whole pie. We just got all, every, you know, Islam's got a little bit of the truth, and Christianity got a little bit of truth, and Buddhism got a little bit of the truth, and, and New Age spirituality got a little bit of the truth. But we're all just trying to figure out what that elephant is, just with a little piece of it. And they say, so, so Christians, because that's the truth, Christians, you are arrogant because you're saying that you're the whole elephant, that you got the whole thing, and no one else does. But the problem is, When you use an illustration like that, when you make that point, they miss their own arrogance. Because as someone claiming that all religions of the world have only a piece of the truth, they are claiming that they are the only ones who can truly see. That they stand back and see the whole elephant and how everyone only has a part of the truth. The true arrogance lies with the claim 
that they, in their own power, in their own reasoning, can see the truth and who has a part and who doesn't. Our claim that Jesus is the only way to God does not come from our own reasoning. It does not come from our own intellect. It does not come from our own desire to be right, but rather comes from revelation from God himself. Do you know who gets to set the terms for how you get to come to God? God does. And the only way we know him at all, the only way we know how to get to him at all, is because he's told us. This is not something we've made up, it is something he has revealed. See, there is only one true way to God, and God gets to determine that. There's only one true way to God, and God gets to determine that. And the only way we know it is because he's chosen to show, chosen to show us. The first, Paul tells us his heart for the lost. And then that part of the problem is, is people have tried to make their own way to God and uh, been passionate about their ways to God, but they've done that not in accordance with knowledge, not in accordance with the truth. But they have their own truth. And now he tells us, look, if, 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 you, if you want to come to know God, you've got to do it on his terms, and he shows us how to do it. Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So if we want to get to God and we want to get to God on God's terms, which is the only way to get to him, through the, is through the path he's laid out. It is through confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Now you know that every religion in the world says, here are the sets of things that you've got to do to get to the God. You've got to live up to a certain value or a certain standard or do these certain things. But God has made it clear that we will never be able to do that in our own strength. You can't get to God through your own effort. He's made that abundantly clear. And if you can't get to God through your own effort, how then will you get to him? Well, he has made the way. He has made the way that Jesus comes living according to those values that God set, living according to the rules that God set, lives perfectly. Jesus does all the things God ever could have wanted us to do, and he dies the death that we deserve to die, paying the price for our crimes against God. And so now Jesus alone has made this way, not a way, but the way, and Paul makes it clear here in verse 9 how we go down that path, that we must confess with our mouth that he is Lord. And believe that God raised him from the dead. That's it. And I want you to notice notice for a moment the contrast between this and what Paul said before about zeal not according to knowledge. You see, coming to Jesus is not about how passionate you are. Coming to Jesus is not about how sincere you are. Coming to Jesus is not about how much zeal you can have. It's not about having enough faith or enough energy toward God. Your level of passion toward spiritual things will never save you. Only the object of your faith can save you. You see, you can have all the passion in the world for spiritual things. You, you can have all of the passion in the world, but if you're headed in the wrong direction, it's futile. But if you head in the right direction, if, you're, if you aim your faith at Jesus, the real Jesus, then even the weakest faith, even the faith of a mustard seed, even faith that carries doubts and insecurity, even faith that comes with a life full of failures 
A faith that is aimed at Jesus, a faith in the right direction will save you. Because it is not your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. It is Jesus who does the saving, not about how much faith I have. It is not about your level of effort or ability, but his work on your behalf. I want you to notice three things about this verse. Three things that you have to do so that your faith is aimed in the right direction. One, you must confess Jesus publicly. You must confess Jesus publicly. You see, following Jesus is not a private affair. Your faith in Jesus can never be just, you know what, it's me and Jesus. You know, it's just me and him. And it's not anybody else's business, just me and him. That is not how faith in Jesus works. You don't get to go off into your own corner and just have you and him. That is not the nature of following Jesus. To follow Jesus is to give your life to him. And if your life is his, then people will know it. Publicly confessing Jesus does not mean that when Obi-Wan Kenobi pops up on your Facebook feed as a, people think he's Jesus, and you say, if you don't share this before everybody else, God's going to deny you before men, so you share that Facebook feed. That is not what it means to publicly confess Jesus. That's Obi-Wan Kenobi. All right? Or you and McGregor. You can skip past that picture and not share it. And God is not going to be upset with you. (laughs) Publicly confessing Jesus most often looks like being baptized before a bunch of people. Because in your baptism, you are telling everyone that you now belong to him. That he is your Lord. That you've been raised from the dead. You know, it is often in other countries, Muslim countries in particular, when people come to faith in Christ, it is at the moment of their baptism that their families reject them, that their families disown them. Because baptism has always been this public declaration of what I believe and what is true of me now. But it can also look like sharing the gospel, living out your faith, making it known to who, who you are and who you follow. You see, the point is, if you follow Jesus, people should know it. No one should be surprised when they learn that you go to church, that you follow Jesus. It shouldn't be a secret. It is a public profession of faith. Two, you must make Jesus your Lord. Following Jesus is not just asking him into your heart. I'm not really sure what that means. It is not just believing that he exists. It is not just believing that he died for you. Following Jesus is making him Lord, making him king, making him the chief executor of your life, the sovereign ruler of your life. This idea goes up against an idea in Rome at the time that said Caesar is Lord, Nero is Lord. Christians said no. Jesus is Lord. Making Jesus Lord makes you a private and him the general. And so when he says jump, you say how high. Making Jesus Lord means that all of your priorities, all of your wants, all of your desires, everything about you takes a back seat to the priorities and wants and desires of Jesus for you. Making Jesus Lord means when you want to do something and he says no, you submit and say okay. It means when he commands you to give something up or to go somewhere or to do something, 
Even when you're not thrilled about it, you say, okay, and submit. Because making Jesus Lord means you've made him your king, and you now live and serve at his pleasure. And you are glad to do so, even when it's hard. Three, it means you believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. I'm going to read that again. You believe in the literal, physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin. First, you cannot believe and be saved that the resurrection of Jesus did not happen. You cannot believe and be saved that the resurrection of Jesus was figurative or that it was spiritual or that, you know, that it was picturing something. Because if Jesus did not raise from the dead, you are still in your sins and still under condemnation. The only way to God is through making him Lord and being forgiven of your sin through the gospel, which is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And so if you want to get to God, not only do you have to believe the resurrection is real and physical, you have to believe it was necessary to bring you the forgiveness that you need to be right with God. You have to believe that by faith your sins were nailed to a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. That they were buried in a tomb with the corpse of Jesus. And that three days later when he was raised from the dead in glory that your sins stayed in the ground. And if you have confessed Jesus as Lord, you have made him your Lord, you have believed the gospel, you have believed in the cross and the resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins, well then, you have become a child of God. If you've believed those things and done those things, you have been made perfect, made clean, made right before him. So that no matter how much you doubt, no matter how many times you stray, no matter how many mistakes in your past or in your future, And no matter the level of your zeal or passion or lack thereof or struggles you have, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, then rest assured you are saved and you will be saved. Notice verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In case there was any confusion, this offer of the gospel, this offer to make Jesus Lord, And to become a child of God is for everyone. Anyone and everyone who will make him Lord, confess him before men, and believe in this gospel will find their sins forgiven, and they will be brought into the family of God. You do not have to clean up before you come to God. You do not have to maintain a level of passion or goodness to keep God on your good side. Jesus has done all of the work for you. And so it doesn't matter your race, your economic status, how good or bad you've been, This is for everyone. Now, verse 13 is actually a quote from the Old Testament. This this line that says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is a quote from the Old Testament book of Joel. And if you go back to the book of Joel, it actually reads a little differently. It says, whoever would call on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Now, Yahweh is this covenant special name for God. It means, I am who I am. It is the name that that puts no limits on who God is or what he can do. He is everything he ever wants to be and needs to be. He just simply is and cannot be defined any other way than simply by saying, I am. 
It was a name so holy to the Jewish people that they never said it. And when they were reading the Bible, they would take the vowels from the word Lord, which in Hebrew is the word Adonai, and they would put those vowels over the, of Adonai over the consonants of the word Yahweh, making a new word that they felt like they could say without breaching the holiness of God. And instead of reading the word Yahweh, they would make this new word Jehovah, which is not really a word. But understand what Paul is doing here. He is saying that if you want to be saved, you must call upon Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the I am that I am, that God who has become man, who has put on flesh, who has lived the life we needed to live and died the death we deserved. You must believe in this God who left heaven to come to earth to save us, who did not leave us to ourselves but came down to rescue us. You must call upon the name of Yahweh. Whom you now know, not as a distant God, who you are afraid to say his name, but whom you know as Jesus of Nazareth. And if you call upon his name, he will not leave you to shame, as verse 11 says. He will not put you to shame. Instead, he will make you a part of his family. But to all of those who go their own way, who go passionately and zealously and with conviction in the wrong direction, there is a day coming where you will be put to shame. There is a day coming where you will be humiliated because you had the gift and the offer of life extended to you again and again, but you thought you could go your own way and find life, find God on your own, by your own path, and instead you will only find death. You are here this morning and you do not know Jesus. I want to plead with you. You are not smart enough to make your own way to God. I want to plead with you. You are not good enough to chart your own course to God. There is but one way. That is through Jesus, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins so that you can be made a child of God. And if you come, you don't have to know God from this distant, scary place that he's going to, you know, squish you with his finger. You can say his name. More than that, you get to run and sit in his lap. You get to call him Abba Father. You get to call him Daddy. All that is required of you is to believe confess he is Lord. If you're here this morning, you don't know him. As we sing this song, I'm going to stand right there. Run down. Stop playing games. Stop pretending. Stop trying to make yourself better. Come and find a family. Come and find the life you've always longed for but never knew it till now. If you're here this morning and you do know Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus, let me ask you this. When you die, what will you be known for? Will someone want to cut your heart out? So that they might bury it amongst the people you served. Will you be known like the Jim Elliots and the David Livingstons and the Lottie Moons of the world? Or will you be known for caring more about things that rust and pass away that have no eternal significance? I pray this morning that God would begin to give you a heart and a burden for the lost people in your life. And that he would give you the courage to stop assuming they're Christians 
and actually do the work of figuring that out so that you might lead them to life everlasting through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come as a people who who have gotten it wrong so many times. We come as a people that every one of us in this room at some point did not believe. Let every one of us in this room have a story about how we came to faith, how we came to the right knowledge, knowledge of the truth, how we moved from going in the wrong direction to going in the right direction. And for those, those people this morning who have trusted you, Father, would you just affirm that in their hearts and give them great security in that, but would you give them boldness and passion and conviction and a burden that everything in their life is meaningless other than serving you as Lord and would you give them the courage to share the most important thing in their life, which is you, to those around them. To stop assuming people are Christians and actually figure out if they really are. Give us that burden as a church, Father, and as individuals of this church. And Father, for the person here this morning who doesn't know you. And it's foolish of me to think that in a room this large there are people in here who are not lost. There obviously are. Father, would you, would you make it abundantly clear to them right now in this moment that they're far from you, that they've tried to go their own way, they've tried to grit their teeth and figure it out and be spiritual and be religious and figure it out and be passionate, be zealous, be curious. Show them there's only one way to fall on their knees before Jesus and make him the king and lord of their life and to submit to him. Would you make that so clear? Would you give them the courage to walk down here that we might all celebrate and rejoice that they would come home and be brought into your family. God, we love you so much. In Christ's name we pray, all those people said. We'll stand together.